Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast, where you can learn everything you need to know about sustainable and ESG investing from leaders in the field. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. Climate change, it's a megatrend that is reshaping economies and markets, perhaps for decades to come. Casey Clark, my guest today, calls this the climate change flow-through effect, which he believes is positively impacting stock prices. Casey Clark is Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Global Head of ESG Investments at Rockefeller Asset Management. Hello, Casey, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. Good. Glad you could join us today. Now, Casey, until I read your research, I hadn't thought of climate change as a trend, but you present some very compelling arguments that our investor listeners will appreciate. Tell us how you arrived at the flow-through effect. Yeah, happy to. But first, if you don't mind, I thought it would be helpful just to give a one-minute overview of Rockefeller Asset Management, since there's uh, often confusion amongst the various Rockefeller entities. Uh, so yeah. Rockefeller uh, Asset Management is a division of Rockefeller Capital Management. We are a for-profit company. It is a separate entity than Rockefeller Foundation, although we speak with those folks regularly and have deep respect uh, for their work. So we at Rockefeller Asset Management manage around $13 billion for institutions and families across the world. <clears throat> it's primarily in equity and bond portfolios. We're expanding in the long short, potentially other alternative asset classes. And so we categorize our business into three areas. Uh, for the listeners so they can help uh, you know, place uh, where our terms are coming from. Uh, active management, think high conviction, global equity investment portfolios, to quantitative or systematic. And we developed a partnership with Bloomberg that was made public to help enhance those capabilities. And three, we have thematic strategies. So think global equity strategies, investing companies, delivering climate mitigation or adaptation solutions. So a lot of the things that we're going to speak about today, it's not theoretical or in concept form. These are actionable investment ideas. Wonderful. Okay. So how do we get started? So first, I think it's helpful to start from the beginning, right? From first greenhouse gas emissions, right? From five sources are causing the planet to warm at an unsustainable rate. And these are outlined in Bill Gates's book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, which, which I've been recommending folks to read. And so let me just go through these five quickly. First, 31% are from making things. Think cement and steel, right? Second, 27% from plugging in. Think electricity. 19% of, of you know, growing things, plants and animals, 16% from transportation, planes, trucks, ships, and 7%, believe it or not, are from keeping warm and keeping cold. Think heating and refrigeration. Now, why does that matter? We're going to just keep asking why, why, and why. <clears throat> the result of greenhouse gas emissions is increasing seasonal temperatures and extreme weather. Why does that matter? As we outlined in the paper, damages infrastructure, increases air pollution, threatening human health, disrupting power supplies, destabilizing food, it threatens air quality, and it's forcing migration. And so, again, why does that matter? In response to that, you see three things. You see shifting public policy, which is transformative. You see shifting consumer buying preferences, which is transformative. And you see technologies that are advancing, which are creating investable opportunities in environmental sectors that we follow, such as renewables, waste, you know, water, energy efficiency, healthcare, and food and ag. And this is what we refer to as the climate flow-through effect. And so one data point, Paul, just to demonstrate the impact on stock prices, you have the FTSE Environmental Opportunities Index. This is a publicly available index. People can Google it and look up the fact sheet. It measures the performance of global companies 
with at least 20% revenue exposure to environmental products or service. Right? That index outperformed the traditional standard global all-cap equity index by 4.6% annualized over the past five years. Now, that, that's incredible. Now, if there are 460 basis points annualized over the past five years. That is correct. Annualized. Now, now, you know, for compliance folks in the line, we got to say past performance is not indicative of future returns. <laughs> of course. Well, no. Ne nevertheless, <laughs> we believe that climate change has impacted stock prices over the past five years, and that may continue for select companies. And, and I'll pause there, but I envision you're going to ask me uh, uh, why or how, but we can get into that when we do. Yeah. Well, yeah. Why do you think that's going to be the case? And you suggest that it could be a very long-term trend in the markets. Yeah, we're talking multi-decade tailwind. And I may go on a, a you know, three to five minute monologue here, but we believe that outperformance may continue across decades as a result of three things primarily. One is government policy and spending. Mm -hmm. Two, as I mentioned, these, these consumers who are changing their buying preferences and three, your technological advancements. So I may just spend a minute going into each of those categories if that works for you. You know, Casey, let's start with government policy and technology. The one that I'm most fascinated by these days is consumer preferences. So uh, we'll leave that till, till the third one and you can take, take some additional time on that one. Good. Okay, we'll do that. So let's start with first government policy. We have net zero carbon emission pledges now cover over 70% of global GDP, 70. That's up from 16% in 2019. So what does that mean? Countries are committing to decarbonize their economies. So let me just highlight a few here. So the European Union is the global leader with binding policies and frameworks. <clears throat> They're looking to achieve 55% greenhouse gas emission reductions by 2030 and carbon neutrality by 2050. You know, they're on track to become the world's first carbon neutral continent. If the U.S. administration announced its intention to achieve 50% emission reduction by 2030, net zero by 2050, if China, they pledged peak emissions by 2030, carbon neutrality before 2060, if Japan, they pledged to put its country on the path net zero by 2050, if India recently, right, one of the world's largest economies, commit to go to net zero by 2070. Now, in addition to those individual company country commitments, and they control a large portion of GDP, you know, we had two other recent developments where an agreement was reached with 40 nations to phase out coal power generation. Now, importantly, uh, the three top coal consumers, US, India, and China, were absent from that. Uh, nevertheless, it's an important statement. And the second is methane emissions. More than 90 countries signed a US and EU-led global methane pledge to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2050. So the, the, the transformation and the amount of spending needed to fulfill these commitments is something like we have never seen in modern history. I mean, and just think about this. So assuming wind and solar play an important role, just to completely decarbonize America's power grid by 2050 would require us to install three times more gigawatts of capacity every year for the next 30 years. I mean, that's, that's, that, that's a powerful transformation, and we can get more into that later. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I'll pause there and I can head to technological advancements. Uh, well, yeah, because that's what's really going to drive these, the ability for these policy, policy initiatives to come anywhere near uh, realizing their goals. Isn't that the case? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And I, I had a feeling you would ask about this. 
<laughs> and in fact, uh, th- these are where all the investable opportunities are. So let me just get right to the point and highlight four here. Um, first is renewable energy, second, food and ag, third, water, fourth, waste. <clears throat> I'll just go into, into, into each of these as well. Renewables, food and ag, water, waste. Mm-hmm. Renewables, if, if, if Paul, pardon the, the lecture I, I may give, but there's a great book that's titled Renewable Energy, a primer for the 21st century. In, in the author is Bruce Usher. Now he underscores the implications of energy transitions from wood to coal, coal to oil, oil to nuclear, nuclear to natural gas. And what he did looking throughout history is highlight four lessons. And those lessons are first, that cost is the driver of the transitions. Right. Second, the transitions are slow, which is why you see a lot of 2050 commitments and not 2030 commitments. Third, innovation accelerates the transition. And fourth, they often have unforeseen consequences. So this next transition to renewable energy will likely be driven by point one, cost. And, and this is misunderstood today. You know, t- today, unsubsidized solar and wind has achieved a levelized cost of electricity that is cheaper or competitive to the marginal cost of coal or natural gas. Right. Now, those, and I think you may say, ask this, but for those not in the industry, the levelized cost of electricity is a standard metric that just compares the cost of producing electricity over a product lifetime. And so these advances then are also creating opportunities in energy storage, green hydrogen, low carbon transportation. Now, pause there and, and I can move on to food and ag, water and waste, but it sounded like you may have had a question. No, no, I, let's move on to... Um water and waste. And then let's talk about ag finally, because I think that for me, that's the most interesting one because it has just so such extraordinary potential that very few people are even aware of. I, I, I could not agree more. So water in, in two sentences with water and waste, climate change exacerbates water stress. Hmm. We know that opportunities here include applying digital solutions to water infrastructure. So think smart metering remote water quality sensoring, think leak detection, think water reuse for industrial and domestic applications, right? There are public companies that are delivering these and there are cities and governments that are demanding these services. Uh, in waste, you know, the, the, the untapped potential for waste is incredible. Reusing plastics alone is estimated at 50 to 80 billion annually, right? Reusing steel could generate seven to 150 billion annually. Reusing uh, paper could generate 30 to 40 billion annually. Um, so imagine the opportunities there in collection, sorting, recycling, reusing. These are all expanding. And, and, and other waste-related opportunities uh, that, are, that are really exciting at the forefront of this space are biodegradable plastics at scale, right? And then converting kind of non-recyclable waste into usable heat or electricity. So, so one, one quick question about one of the... Uh, recyclable materials that you just mentioned, Casey. Most people don't think of steel as something that we're going to be recycling for gen- from generation to generation to, gen- to generation. Tell us a little bit more about that. Not only opportunities to recycle steel, if you're thinking about centuries ahead, but also the opportunity to produce steel, which is what we call a hard to abate industry. In other words, it uses such a high amount of energy that you cannot use electricity alone to produce uh, and manage steel. Hmm. So this is where you have technologies such as hydrogen, 
which can be used in order to create steel in a manner that generates low to no carbon. And so think about all the opportunities as countries want to decarbonize their economies. They will need to consider um, how to use hydrogen in order to decarbonize some of these hard to abate sectors such as steel and cement. Right. And using things like carbon capture. Okay, now let's move on to the ag, because uh, again, like I said, this is the one that's, I think, most fascinating and least understood. Yes, my, my, this is one of my favorites. So, so let me, I rattle off four facts. In fact, I, I posted these to LinkedIn uh, just yesterday. I rattle off four facts about food and ag that I think everyone should know. Uh, first, it accounts for 25 to 35% of GHG emissions. Second, we need to increase food production by greater than 50% to feed nearly 10 billion people by 2050. That is wild. Uh, third, nearly one quarter of all food is wasted from farm to fork. And fourth fact is in the US alone, there's 1.1 trillion spent on food. And that's according to the Rockefeller Foundation's True Cost of Food report, which, which I suggest folks reading. This is an industry that is ripe for disruption. Uh, today, it's primarily a, a private investment, a private equity opportunity, but in the years ahead, we believe there will be opportunities for companies that can fall into three categories of how do you produce food at lower carbon emissions, how do you improve diet quality, and how do you reduce food waste? Okay, so we're on track, I believe, to end up way beyond my lifetime with uh, <laughs> 25 plus mega cities on the planet that are going to have um, well over 10 million people living in each of these places. In some cases, you, we could have 50 or 60 million people living in a, a single urban area. Um, how are we going to feed all of these folks? How are we going to get the food to them? How are we going to handle the food waste in situations like that? Is that what we're in the process of figuring out now? That's what we are trying to figure out. And there, there is kind of rapid uh, innovation in not only uh, plant-based meats, but precision fermentation and then cultured meats. And the prevailing thought is it'll evolve in that, in that way. So plant-based meats, one, will evolve into precision fermentation, two, and then cultured meats, which in essence is taking a biopsy from a cow and creating 80,000 burgers. Um, and so uh, these are all of the you know, innovations underway in order to think about how can we produce food at low to no carbon footprint, but not only just food, healthy sources of protein. Um, and those are the three things that are most talked about in the most kind of exciting areas that are, that, that are ripe for disruption. For fertilizer, an interesting one too, I, I could go into fertilizer a little, but that, that, that's something when you talk about agriculture. Let's <clears throat> include it. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so you talk about agriculture. Now, to make synthetic fertilizer, we need ammonia, right, which is made from nitrogen to hydrogen. Now, that process requires heat, which produces greenhouse gas emissions. Then, to move it from where it's made to where it's stored to where it's used, which is the farm, requires loading it on trucks powered by gasoline. Now, finally, after that fertilizer is applied to soil, a meaningful portion of that nitrogen never gets absorbed by the plant. So the crops, in fact, take less than half of the nitrogen, and the rest runs off into ground or surface waters, which causes pollution, and it escapes into the air in the form of nitrous oxide. Now, nitrous oxide is 265 times more potent uh, global warming potential than carbon dioxide. So, so just think about the, the, the potential to create uh, fertilizers alone uh, that can reduce the carbon footprint, reduce 
runoff reduce nitrous oxide from, from escaping into the atmosphere is, is tremendous. And there's companies out there, specifically now in the private markets, but you have large established innovators that are at the forefront of, of transforming that space. So, Casey, is, does this apply uh, what you've just been describing? In your research, you talk about climate change having a broad and cascading impact on the environment, humanity, and society. It sounds like what you've just described is a process that could be dramatically impacted if we, if we learn how to make it more efficient, less energy consume, consuming, and that sort of thing. It could make a big difference. Oh, I, I, absolutely. And, 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 you know, we touched a little bit on this as far as climate change having a broad and cascading impact, but it's worth just reinforcing in a couple minutes. Sure. You know, we talked about what does climate change cause, right? And, and this is important because people think climate change, increasing uh, sea levels, and uh, third, why do I care? Like, so what? What does that mean for me? And that's how most people think. So climate change causes right, flooding, drought, severe storms, wildfires, you know, rising sea levels, extreme seasonal temperatures. Right? Th th that's what it causes. And in fact, what in turn happens there is what we talk about, damages infrastructure, which we're seeing. It creates air pollution. It threatens human health. It disrupts our power, it destabilizes food, and it threatens water of quantity and quality. And, and again, so, so what matters there? And that's changing our living standards. That is reducing productivity and GDP, and that's increasing public awareness. And you have all of this that's exacerbated by the rise of the middle class, by aging demographics, and by urbanization. And, and really, that is, you know, going back to that is the flow through effect. That is the so what. And so you have policymakers that are listening to this. You have consumers' awareness increasing, which are voting at the polls for issues such as climate change. And you have, you have uh, business folks and investors stepping up to try to create and catalyze the future technological innovation that can create opportunities in this space and act as the solution to both generate revenues, but also be part of the solution. Now, part of the investment side of this whole dialogue, Casey, that you've been describing, you referred to as... Um, well, the investment opportunities regarding climate change are going to be led by early or established innovators. Give us an example of an early innovator and an example of an established innovator. Well, look, you know, sometimes people drone on and on. Let me just like throw out five to six of them in one or two sentences. Um, sure. Let's see, early innovators creating biodegradable plastics. You know, so think about that. Think about uh, potato chip bags that are largely biodegradable. Think about water bottles being largely biodegradable. Um, other early innovators think environmentally friendly food and apparel. We talked a lot about food, but also apparel. In fact, you had one well-known environmentally friendly apparel company go public uh, recently. Uh, established innovators think these you know, large utilities in Europe who are now producing and delivering renewable energy at scale. They are building capabilities to leverage hydrogen to reduce emissions in hard to abate sectors such as steel. They are building networks of electric vehicle charging stations, right? Other established innovators, um, uh, let me think, you know, you have, you have uh, companies that manufacture trains or rolling stock. It seems like a sleepy industry, but now you have these same companies that are producing hydrogen fuel cell trains to have low to no carbon trains going long distances. Uh, other established innovators, think of you have engineering and construction firms that have been around for a while that we all need to hire, that governments and cities need to hire to transform the energy grid 
to make our cities more resilient to climate change. So it's th- this is um, this is going to touch on, on 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 many many sectors. Okay, one last question that well, we didn't have in the outline, but that I'm very curious about uh, in all of these types of conversations is. How are municipalities, let's just take New York City, uh, where you live and work and which I live, live near to and where I work also, where, how, how are we going to manage these very dynamic, long-range, very expensive processes related to agriculture and food and energy and all that sort of thing in our municipal centers, our large cities that already exist and that are essentially going to be in transition for uh, decades to come? Through public and private collaborations. I mean, this is going to take a Herculean effort. I, I, I mean, this, we, we will, this is a transformation uh, that, that we as a society must succeed in that will be unlike anything we've ever seen. You know, New York City, I know firsthand, has been asked for plans in order to help make the city more resilient in order to fund projects that are aligned with uh, the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. Um, where, where are the first dollars spent? Think a lot of those engineering and construction, you know, how do we tie this back to investing? Think of those engineering and construction firms who are often the first ones hired to come in and lay out plans for a city like New York, for a city like Miami, for the state of Hawaii, for cities like San Diego and Los Angeles. Uh, you have these big consulting firms come in to talk about um, the infrastructure that will need to change from transportation to building natural barriers to prevent sea level rise and to, and to, to mitigate flooding. It, it, it'll be pervasive. In, in, you know, I just want to hit on, we, we talk about this being you know, transformative, but I'm not sure people quite understand you know, what that means. So maybe I could just hit on a couple areas, like sure. infrastructure, for example. Right. Since the beginning of the electric grid, utilities placed most power plants close to America's growing cities, right? Because it was easy to use railroads and pipelines to ship fossil fuels from where they are extracted to the power plants, and they were burnt to make electricity. So as a result, you have America's power grid relies on, you know, railways and pipelines. And then they, they transition a lot of that to move electricity over short distances to cities. Right? That, that model doesn't work with solar and wind. <laughs> most of America's sunlight's in the Southwest and most of our wind's in the Great Plains. And so you, you just, I mean, imagine some of, some of the transformation that's going to need to occur there. And then you have the transmission and distribution. Right. right? Transmission and distribution of electricity is you know, more than a third of the final cost of electricity. We will need to upgrade the electrical service to each household by at least a factor of two. And in many instances, more than that. I mean, what does that mean? That means streets being dug up and electrical poles climbed to install heavier wires, transformers, and other equipment, touching almost every community if we're going to do this right. Um, you know, we talked about, and that's just, you talk about how it's going to impact the cities. Those are just two ways. Think about transportation. Uh, think about the flooding that's occurring. Um, I mean, I, I could go on and talk a little more about, you know, hydrogen and how that's going to be used, uh, especially in hard-to-abate sectors. But hopefully that just provides a little glimpse of what's going to need to transform just within the, the electrical grid and the energy infrastructure. And that's not to mention the transportation in food and ag, uh, the transformation in food and ag and how transportation is going to have to change and how you know heating or cooling or heating and refrigeration, which is 77% of GHG emissions, will, will have to change. 
Well, listen, we will come back for another conversation about all of these topics in the future. And I really appreciate your time today. How can folks who are tuning in get in touch with you and Rockefeller Asset Management to learn more about your portfolio strategies and especially to have you uh, and the professionals at Rockefeller Asset Management uh, help them learn more about how to invest in ways that can give them good performance and outperformance over time. I, I, I appreciate that. So, you know, Rockefeller Capital Management and Rockefeller Asset Management, we also have a division that that uh, manages wealth, entire portfolios for high net worth families and mass affluence. So guiding entire asset allocation. Uh, check us out at Rockefeller Capital Management and Rockefeller Asset Management website at LinkedIn. Uh, and for myself personally, I'd encourage people to follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm starting to share my views uh, more and more uh, using that forum. Uh, so feel free to follow me there. Greg, well, thank you very much. Casey Clark, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Global Head of ESG Investments for Rockefeller Asset Management. And to our listeners, please join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, your host for the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Mm-hmm.